0: Hello everyone, Trish Geis here, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned From My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guise is not a legal professional nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number 2. I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit so I recommend after listening to each episode take a few minutes and think about what you've heard what resonated with you do some things seem a bit more clear to you now or do you need to do a bit more digging the whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things perhaps in a different light or for you to slow down or step back a little bit and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. With me today is Lisa Ziderman. She's a managing partner at Miller Zeiderman LLP. She's a matrimonial attorney, CFL, and certified divorce financial analyst. She regularly handles complex financial and custody divorce matters for high net worth individuals. She is named to the Crane's New York List of Notable Women Attorneys for 2022, a Hudson Valley Best Lawyer in 2022, and a 2021 Best Family Law Attorney for Client Satisfaction by the American Institute of Family Law Attorneys, among other awards Ms. Siderman is also a founding member of the American Academy of Certified Financial Litigators and a member of the Panel for Attorneys for Children.
1: Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I really
1: can't wait to jump into the
2: topic of financial abuse. I've talked about it many times on the show, and on a weekly basis, I'm talking to clients about everything that involves financial abuse. And I think it's important that we talk about it and talk about what it looks like and what it is and how to mitigate that. I'd love to know from your perspective, what exactly is financial abuse and what does it look like? What are some of the indicators that people will recognize?
1: I think, first of all, it's important to understand that it's about control and it is about controlling someone else, their movements, their ability to function in the world, their ability to take care of their themselves, perhaps taking care of the children, their ability to reach out to other people, isolation, isolating that person when you don't have the resources to, for example, transport yourself and your child to go get groceries, to reach out to other relatives and friends, to be part of a community, then you become so isolated and controlled that you are really being abused. And I don't think that people recognize how important it is when people are financially abused all the other parts that go together because then you're more susceptible to mental abuse. You're more susceptible to physical abuse because you're already becoming isolated and controlled. There are so many signs of it. I think that you know it may start in a very small way. For example, perhaps you were on a credit card and now you're no longer on that credit card and all of a sudden you're not seeing the statements for that credit card. The bank account that maybe you were part of you're now shut out of or perhaps you were never part of a bank account perhaps from the very beginning of your relationship with this person whether it be a spouse or a partner you really didn't have any transparency into the financial conditions of your relationship and the fact that you had no transparency whether there was frankly financial resources or limited financial resources you didn't know that and so you were you felt restricted controlled And maybe you didn't understand, but you were also abused.
2: You know, I'm so glad you used the word abuse as well, because I think people are afraid to use that term. And that's exactly what it is. And it's about control. You're so right. You know, you touched upon, too, in terms of the different levels of income. And, you know, I find I've had quite a few clients that are high net worth. And there is the assumption that how hard can it be? And you'll see one woman had said, you know what? Just because I drive up in a BMW and I'm carrying a coach purse. Doesn't mean I'm not being financially controlled, and in some cases, I feel like even more so. Yes, they are accustomed to a certain lifestyle, but when you don't have access to money, you don't have access to money, no matter how much money is on paper. And I find that that victim blaming—you know, we even do it to ourselves, but that other people do too—or the the usual, well, how come you, things aren't in your name? Why weren't you more involved in the finances? And I I really think that that sets a, a wrong precedent in victim blaming.
1: I think that's 100% true. I think people who become survivors of financial abuse, you know, they, they tell their story as that they just were not able to essentially elevate themselves to a place where they could speak up or feel that they were safe enough to ask for the information because they would be, you know, physically abused or they would be emotionally abused or they would be told that it doesn't matter that you don't know and you don't need to know and it it doesn't concern you and it's none of your business and this is my money i'm earning it and even you know i i meet with women all the time who are professional women also who believe it or not they too are survivors of financial abuse because they may have been on on such a pattern where they were literally turning over their salary to the abuser. And they then didn't see that salary. They were put on some sort of a limited allowance and they weren't allowed to make investment decisions. They weren't permitted to ask questions. They weren't permitted to see the spreadsheets or the information or to have access to that information. So even though they were the earners The people who were actually supporting the family, they too were survivors of of financial abuse. You know, it's interesting too that you mentioned
2: that because, you know, there are some cases where, whether they're the earners or not, they just rely on the transparency of the other individual. And there's a trust that should be implicit. In some cases, with stay at home moms, they're child rearing and it's a division of labor. You allow your partner to control, not control the finances, that's not how it's seen at first, but to handle the finances. And, you know, it's just some, sometimes it's just simply because a person can't do it all. But there must be ways in which one can protect their financial position before going into a separation. And, of course, afterwards, can you take us through a little bit of that of how we should protect ourselves even before we're even considering separating?
1: Sure. So there's a couple of things I, I would say you should protect yourself before you even actually enter into the partnership. I I always say to people, I think it's really a good idea to, if you're getting married, to sign a prenuptial agreement to make sure that there's complete transparency from the very beginning as to the assets, liability, and income so that you're starting off with a clean, but very transparent slate. Yes. And so you can see through and you know exactly what the numbers are from the very beginning. It also allows you to have these conversations with your soon-to-be partner in a way that you may not have had them, you know, prior to a marriage. And so that prenuptial agreement could be real protection for you. And, you know, it may need to be negotiated later in a postnuptial agreement, perhaps, where things might have changed, where maybe there were children that weren't anticipated or that you didn't anticipate that you would be staying at home with the children or that your spouse would or whatever it is. So a prenuptial agreement, a postnuptial agreement, certainly having your own bank account you know, I I will say my husband and I have all joint bank accounts. So I'm not the typical person, but I also, we call it the mailbox rule. And I always, we, we actually joke about it. And in fact, I was just actually in the Wall Street Journal and we talked about it in the article in the Wall Street Journal that on a weekend, which is a random day for bills to appear, we go down and we have breakfast. And when we do, I go to the mailbox and I open the mailbox. And, you know, while we're sitting in the car, I open all the mail randomly. So I'm seeing all of the credit cards and all the bank statements as they come and there's no particular you know rhyme or reason for why they will come on a saturday versus a friday right so right. i just get kind of the flavor of what's going on and it's a conversation that we have on an ongoing basis it's part of our dialogue is you know what what is our savings what are our investments it's not something that we sit down on a monthly or yearly basis but it is mm-hmm. part of our our conversation our discussion our lifestyle And so I think one way to protect yourself is to start from the very beginning of your partnership to have those conversations. And if someone is shutting down and and not having those conversations, it's really important to ask yourself why, to perhaps, you know, delve a little bit deeper, to see a therapist, have a conversation, to see a financial advisor, have a conversation, make sure that you have a bank account at that point, that you, you know, you have some separate funds for an emergency you know, one of the other things that came up for me in the last few weeks that somebody pointed out is that people who are often financially abused are often under some sort of surveillance also. So mm-hmm. they they may actually have their phones being looked at all the time. They may not have privacy about the conversations they are having. They may become, as I said earlier, isolated from family members and not allowed to have those conversations with them. So all of these should be signs and I think that the way to prevent them is you know to some degree if you can push back so that it doesn't get to the point where you are financially abused certainly making sure that you have a safety bank account so that you know you have essentially your stash so that if there is an emergency situation and you need to get yourself out of that emergency situation that you have it and that you keep trusted friends advisors, a therapist in your life so that you don't feel isolated and you can have these discussions with people. I think that's so
2: smart the discussion part as you're talking about having the the mailbox discussion and it's just so nonchalant and it's just so easy that you know what I heard in my head was, you know, talking to my husband about do we have any milk left? Do we have any this left? That kind of, you know, to take away the the tension and the for for many people, finances are such a loaded topic. And it shouldn't be, really. It's just like groceries or anything else or how many jelly beans or whatever. And I think that's such a smart idea, especially from the beginning. We don't do enough of that. We may know, we think we may know everything about the other individual, but usually not until there's a crisis and oftentimes a financial crisis. And you're right. So many people get into a relationship not fully knowing and not getting full transparency about, about debts or even about a person's spending philosophy because we all have learned from our childhoods. And I liked what you said about, you know, looking at what, why you're triggered or your partner's triggered. If there's if there's some issues, that's the time to be talking about it, not when you're 10 years down the road with a you know, big mortgage and kids. And that's where a lot of the
1: problems stem from. I, I think that's 100% correct. This is definitely conversations to have before you have children. You know, I look at our clientele and I say to myself, there were so many signs for so many people mm-hmm. that, they they didn't pay attention to the red flags so one of the other things is i think you need to pay attention to the red flags if you start to see that there is a absolute shutdown of information and if if this is early certainly early in the marriage before you have children it it is so much easier frankly than when you do have children and when you are looking at trying to co-parent with someone who Mm -hmm. is not being transparent about finances and other issues for the next eighteen or twenty one years, that and and of course, for the rest of your life, right? But right. certainly for the next eighteen to twenty one years. So it, it is difficult, and I think that people really need to recognize those red flags. They need to find out about who they are dating and who they are going to be marrying or partnering with in some way. Exactly. Yeah, I find a lot
2: of people are blindsided or they feel they're blindsided once they go through a separation. And whether they had access to the funds before or not, in certain situations with control, now all of a sudden they don't. Or then that's when they find out there's a huge debt they weren't aware of, unexplained purchases, and all these kinds of things. And of course, on the other side, the threat of, your, I'm going to make sure you're left with nothing. How do you advise clients, generally speaking, in that regard, where it's something new to them and they're terrified because their financial freedom and financial survival seems to be at stake?
1: So I think that, again, they, first of all, hopefully have not been cut off from the people who really care about them. That's important. And they need to actually reach out to those people who do care about them and have these very frank and honest conversations about what is happening in their lives, if they are being put into that situation. And look, it happens to so many people and frankly, so many women. People need to recognize that they are not alone. There are certainly very, you know, there there are many agencies to go to. As I think I had shared with you, we had I'm on the board of a non-for-profit called Savvy Ladies, which actually helps pair women for free on a free helpline, one-to-one with financial advisors. And those financial advisors will help to explain, enhance, and you know, work with women who have financial issues. They will also be able to direct them to other places that could be help for some of these women who are struggling with financial abuse. So that is certainly a resource for people, Savvy Ladies, and it is free and there is a helpline and you just call in and there will be somebody to take the information and to get them paired with a financial advisor or financial professional. That is a huge relief and they are very sensitive to financial abuse. We've had many seminars on it and we've spoken about it and certainly it is a place, but there are other places as well that women can go to as well as men who are being financially abused. Certainly you could see an attorney and explain your situation and find out if perhaps it's time to think about what next steps need to happen to unwind a relationship that is abusive in some ways, whether it be financially or emotionally or physically or all of them, because many times they go together. You know, I always think of the the Netflix show Made. I don't know if you ever yes. saw it. And that was a prime example of a woman who literally, and it was a true story, who really was financially abused, but in addition to be financially abused, she was physically abused, and she literally could not get child care for her child so that she could go out to work to earn. And if she couldn't earn, then she couldn't get out. It, It became a horrible cycle for her until she was able to get some help and to reach out to people, and it was very difficult. And I think we see that many, many times for women. You know, you touched on such a great point that
2: behind all of that seems to be shame and embarrassment. And But you, you raise such a good point in that this can happen to anybody and it happens to the brightest, the best. It doesn't matter. Control and coercive control is pretty much everyone is is ripe and ready for that. You have to be aware, but also I like what you said in terms of making sure that you stay close with certain people that are supportive and to not be embarrassed and to not have any shame. Because this isn't your fault, you didn't do this, and I love the idea of the savvy ladies. And I'll make sure for the listeners that we have the contact information in the show notes so that you can contact that. I think that is an absolutely fantastic idea. And to it's never too late to become financially savvy, and 100%. right, and to not just take it lying down. You need to start educating yourself and then also your children at a very young age. Now you mentioned something about talking to an attorney. Now how? best is it to not just in terms of the financial abuse but what are some of the tips that you can give listeners to when they're first meeting with an attorney to because the tendency is to blah and just tell you everything right because it's really difficult to discern what's important and what's not because everything seems important how can somebody navigate that and come in whether they're emotionally regulated or not and give you the most pertinent information for the time being
1: so that's such a great question. I usually conduct a consultation. It is a paid consultation, but it's a consultation and I do it for an hour. And within that hour, I am able to really direct and to understand what the issues are. And I usually first try to understand how many years someone is married, what, you know, who their children are, who might be the primary caregiver of the children, the dynamic of the relationship certainly what the assets and the liabilities are to the extent that someone knows and bringing documentation such as if you can get hold of tax returns or bank account statements, if you're fortunate enough to actually understand the assets and the liabilities come in with a spreadsheet, all of those kinds of things are really so helpful coming in with, you know, W-2s or K-1s, anything that is financially related, they will start to tell the story and if you can do that, if you can actually come in with that information, and I would listen when you're in there. Listen for the questions, because whoever you're meeting with usually is going to have a, an end game in, in, in terms of that consultation of what they need to know to issue spot and then to be able to provide advice at the end which is really how I conduct my consultations. So, you know, I get the information, I know which information, what information I really need. And then by the end of the consultation, I can kind of give a roadmap. It's not a perfect roadmap um, Mm -hmm. because I don't have that crystal ball. I always say sometimes that crystal ball is very dark, but it is, and, and sometimes it is literally black, but at least I can give some idea of what the next step should be and what direction someone should move in. You know, if you are being abused, then be upfront about it. Be frank Mm -hmm. about it. Sometimes, as, as we talked about, people are embarrassed. And I don't always hear right away about the abuse. I have to ask about it. Sometimes I suspect it and I wait a little bit and I ask about it. But, you know, there are usually some signs that I can pick up during the consultation about it. But again, tell your attorney, be honest. It's like going to a doctor if you don't tell the doctor what your symptoms are the doctor isn't going to make a proper diagnosis exactly. you, so you're not there to to trick the, the doctor and you're not there to try to you know essentially whitewash the situation for the attorney you want to be honest about it
2: that's such a good point you this you're paying this attorney to be on your side to advocate for you and i know a lot of lawyers have said there's nothing more frustrating and not getting full disclosure from your own client and having to be in court faced with something you weren't aware of, or for that matter, have a horrible outcome that possibly could have been prevented if they had known such and such. And you're right. So again, back to the shame and the regret. Or I know some people are afraid to admit certain things to their uh, attorney because it doesn't put them in in a good light. From my experience, attorneys don't care. You know, you have a job. It doesn't matter. You're not there to judge. You are not judge and jury and if you want the best representation because i know lawyers get a bad rap but if you you you're only as good as the information you're given exactly right?
1: and, and look, people reveal mental health illness to us people reveal um their their financial issues to us we are absolutely not here to judge and if you feel like your attorney is judgmental then that's probably not the attorney for you you need an attorney who is actually not going to be judge and jury but is going to be there to advocate now that does not mean that you need an attorney who's not going to counsel you. Right. Okay. I, you know, we are the first to say to our clients, no, you you should not do it that way, or no, that wasn't the best thing to say or do yes. or text or any of those things. But if we don't know about it, then and we find out in court, it, it's so much more difficult to turn it around because we we aren't prepared for that moment. You know, also I would say. You want to keep you know, your text messages, you want to keep your emails, you want to keep all of that information safe and sound. You want to make sure your phone is password protected. You want to make sure that your emails are protected. You know, sometimes people use the same server, for example, or mm-hmm. the same, you know, the, the same lines, etc. And so you want to make sure that you have your own personal hotspot, that you are in your bubble, essentially, so that you can Converse in a trusted and safe way with your attorney. So all of those are really important as well, and making sure that you look around, that you're aware. If there is a tax return, don't just look at it. Make a copy of it. Yes, it's an yes. opportunity. I can't tell you how many people say to me, you know, we're we're six months into the to the case or a year into the case. Well, you know, there were these documents in the basement. Maybe oh. I should go through them. Really, you didn't really? go through those yet. You didn't tell us about them or there are some documents in the attic. Maybe those would 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 tell me what separate property I had. Yeah, they might have if you actually (laughs) looked at them. So it's so important to to start to think about what you have that could actually provide information to your attorney. Yeah, a good point,
2: especially before you make any moves or any kind of communication, because it's so much easier typically than even if you are controlled. To a certain extent, it's easier before as opposed to after. Yes, lawyers and, and judges can make it happen, but it can be a long, drawn-out, expensive process getting that, and, and and that can be subverted. And like you said, you know, so much of it can be prevented. It's so much harder to dial it back. I think that's a, a good premise for life itself. Whether it's painting or anything else, it's all in the prep. It's not in the actual painting, and that's the grueling part. But you know how I see it is: you have to see your lawyer, your attorney, as a partner who is advocating for you, and that you have to pretty much tell them at all. Even just like your doctor, I know some people aren't that transparent with their doctor either, and then lo and behold, they have heart disease a few years later because they haven't told them everything, you know, and I guess people don't want to be judged, but they don't want to be criticized, and that's great, but I don't think people realize at the outset how much is at stake. So when you're talking about that paperwork, There tends to be a bit of a laissez-faire attitude and, well, I'll I'll look at it later, not realizing until you're down to nitty gritty, oh, shoot, this is really serious and it can become a battle.
1: Without a doubt. And, you know, I think that there are other things that people also, many times people tell me as we're literally at the end of the case, you know, I remember he had a girlfriend and there was some sort of an order of protection against him by the girlfriend and there was some sort of a situation. And I'm hearing this for the first time. Really? And what exactly happened? Well, he was put into in jail or he beat her up or, you know, any of those kinds of things. Right. Red flags that would like go off. And right. and but and certainly those are things that you should be sharing. Past history is really important because it's also, you know, essentially gives you a a glimmer into the future of what the problem might be. So, you know, perhaps your spouse was actually, had had a mental health illness. Perhaps your spouse had been hospitalized. Perhaps there were suicidal ideations. Perhaps there were orders of protection. Those are all things that you need to actually to start to think about. Maybe they should have been thought about, you know, <laughs> at the beginning, okay. But certainly they would be things to consider if they are repeating in time and certainly things to share. Now, that doesn't mean that, look, people with mental health illnesses can do phenomenally well. They, they can go to therapy, they can utilize medications, they have all sorts of resources, and that doesn't mean that they will resurface or that they're problematic for a marriage. But if you're seeing something that is repeating, okay, like orders of protection or mm-hmm. some sort of abuse, that is something that is serious that you need to pay attention to. Yeah, very good point. Very good
2: point. Now, I think you and I talked about this before that, and we talked a little earlier about this too. That sometimes people get frustrated with their lawyers, but for a different reason. They assume that their lawyer remembers every detail of their case, and so it doesn't matter if you've spoken to your attorney every week or every month. Doesn't matter. Their expectations seem to be a bit unrealistic in that sense. And so, can you take us down that road into the daily life of a lawyer and and why that is, why you don't know every detail of the case when called upon at any given moment.
1: So, I think you have to look at our office as an emergency room because that's essentially what it is. It is a a trauma center, right? And and all day long people are calling us with their emergencies and we are putting out the fires and dealing with the emergencies as well as strategizing for the long-term plans, right? So, we are we're in trial we are, and those trials may be go day to day, which is helpful, okay? Or they may be now, and then six months from now we do the next part of the trial. But in between, we may have had four other trials, right. you know, twenty other depositions, and and all sorts of emergencies that we have been dealing with in the emergency room called our office, <laughs> right? And <laughs> and we are dealing with other lawyers, other every every parent has a schedule for their child whether it be soccer or lacrosse or karate or gymnastics we are trying to keep all of those juggled in our heads to the degree that we we need to do that because there may be issues of supervision or there may be issues of coordinating parental schedules we have people who are transferring monies out of accounts Great. and we are trying to you know retrieve those monies it is a full packed day, night, frankly, and many weekends. And we are doing the very best that we can for people to make sure that their children and their finances are safe. Now, in between all of that, we're meeting new clients too, okay? And that is, as I say to people, it's the difference of being at a busy restaurant where the food is really great Mm -hmm. or being at that restaurant down the street that nobody wants to go to. Okay, we're the busy restaurant and people want to come here because we are actually, you know, cooking up the food that is good to eat. Okay, which is service and making sure that we take care of our clients and making sure that we are meticulous about what we're putting in in terms of court papers and understanding the finances and taking the depositions and doing the discovery and making sure that if it gets to a trial, we are fully prepared. So those are all the things that are going on. We cannot possibly remember every single detail of every single person's case without reviewing our notes, documents, our charts that we have been making, memos, speaking to one another, looking at emails that we know have come in and that we read you know, six months prior. It is just not possible. We have a lot of the information in, in our heads, and, and people will often say, I have the best memory that there is. Because if I see it once, I remember that it absolutely exists and <laughs> and and that it definitely happened. But I think clients also need to understand that there is just no physically, there is just no way to have every single detail of their lives in our heads. That is their lives. They're going to remember every single detail. We're going to do the best we can to do that. But that's why we have to review our notes. And so when they email us a question, very often we have to go back into our system and look at our notes and understand what the question is about or look at the prenuptial agreement and understand what those provisions provide or someone will call about their you know there's their separation or stipulation of settlement and we have to go back and create and and refresh our recollection as to what that is because there's no way that we can we can remember those numbers or those exact details about their children or their finances we can remember a lot but not everything. And when you're asking us a specific question, we need to make sure that we know it exactly because we're Mm -hmm. answering your question.
2: I love that analogy about the emergency room and and even speaking about reviewing. Doctors never speak extemporaneously. They always have the chart in their hand and often they don't review it beforehand like perhaps you would. They're reviewing it as you're sitting there oftentimes. That gives me a great deal of comfort in knowing that that is the practice but you know the way you articulate it is I hope everybody internalizes that that's such a great way of describing it might even be I might suggest to some of my lawyer friends that that's maybe something they need to describe to clients at the first meeting to in terms of I like when people go into meetings meeting lawyer or financial advisor whomever for the first time to talk about expectations to see to make sure their behavior expectations match up to what
1: that person can deliver and vice versa would you
2: agree? A hundred
1: percent. You know, I look, I think most clients understand that you have other clients. And look, we each client is special to us and important to us. But I think that they understand if they're going to ask us a, a specific question, we have to look at it. And certainly for every court appearance, we we review our memos, we add information to it, we go back and discuss it as a team, you know, whoever is working on the case. So that when we go into court for that, frankly, 15, 20 minutes, a half an hour Mm -hmm. that we are appearing before that judge and essentially giving the judge snippets of, of information, right? Because the judge is also hearing, you know, hundreds of other cases. So it's so important that that review and that prep time actually happen. And I do think it's important that the client understands that. Because some clients actually don't understand that you need that because they remember, of course, about everything about their child that they need to know. And they remember everything about their finances that they need to know. And when they and that is great. But you have to expect that your lawyer is going to review notes and documents and that this is not a one time I review it, done it and exactly. And now, it's good for the next you know year or two as we're going through the case. Exactly. So based on that, I have two questions. First one being,
2: it's very common for clients. The ones I'm talking that I talk to on a regular basis, there is this incessant need to make sure the lawyer, and I myself fell victim to this years ago. Make sure your lawyer knows every detail because it's very difficult to discern what they should know. So fair enough. But I find too, that when you're going through a divorce or separation, it can be difficult for people to regulate enough in order to collect all of the information in a succinct form, as you mentioned. So you mentioned when you go into court, you give the judge snippets. I like that in the sense of clients finding a way to give you little snippets. And then if more information is needed, you would request that. I, I find that sometimes it's like handing your accountant just a bunch of receipts. That's not very helpful, right? Whereas imagine even if you have things broken down into themes and, and, and materials so that, because you're human too, in any way, shape, or if you can do even an executive summary, I imagine that would help instead of just just information dumping.
1: Yes. So you know, when we first have a client come in, we often ask for a narrative essentially, and <laughs> that narrative is actually very important because we use it if we're going to submit a motion, we refer to that narrative. If we are, you know, right before a deposition, I had a deposition a couple of weeks ago, and it was one of the things that I read during the weekend before the deposition it was so informative i knew most of it mm-hmm. i had read it at the very beginning of the case but a lot of the details i had not recalled and it was so it 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 put me into the essentially the framework of what their marriage was like why mm-hmm. we are here now today right how we got here that is is very important and then of course you know bullet points of of what is happening in terms of how is access going for your children are there transition issues, you know, are are there monetary issues that are going on? Are you not receiving your support? Those kinds of things would be helpful if clients actually put together a Word document and sent it and said, these are the issues, maybe a week in advance of the court appearance. And I just want to make sure if you have any questions, please email me and, and let me know if you have any questions about this. But I thought that this might be helpful for you. And so that's that's also a very helpful tool. Look, we're in the emergency room, so we know what's mm-hmm. happening all the time, right? And, and so, you know, in my mind, as I'm going through each of these situations, I'm keeping kind of this running idea of what a judge needs to hear about. But having a, somebody put in, maybe there's five things that I don't necessarily know whether you forgot to tell me that is certainly helpful. Or, you know, I just want you to remember this. Now, I might say, you know what, that doesn't really matter, to be perfectly honest, right? Right. A judge is not going to find that important right now. Put that to the side, okay? Because it's not really what we're focused on at the moment. But on the other hand, it might be something important. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I know I find a lot of people
2: you know, in terms of fairness, or if someone's had an affair and that kind of thing and up here in Canada, it, it really is irrelevant. And it may be, it's very unfortunate, but it does not affect the division of assets and, and debt. It doesn't affect parenting. And, and to me, when I hear that, that's often, uh, you know, shooting somebody like that over to therapy. And because there's a lot to unpack there, and that's something that lawyers definitely, you don't want to be paying for that with the lawyer's fees. And you also, that's just not the forte. And that's just not what you're there for. But speaking of lawyers now, so we talked about clients and how they should essentially prepare, because I think it's very important for them to prepare for mediation. Whatever it is you're going into, I find a lot of people have the L.A. law thought process where I just tell my lawyer and they do it, as opposed to being prepared themselves and going into mediation and being fully prepared themselves. So because it is their case. But for lawyers, what do you feel are some best practices? What are some of the things that clients should be looking for in a lawyer?
1: Okay, so first of all, and and I should be clear, we we don't mediate. We right. try to resolve. We try to negotiate. But we are not mediators. Many times we'll work with people as they go through mediation. But we are litigators. We are in court a lot. We, we definitely conduct depositions. We conduct dis- discovery. We want to make sure that we get to the bottom of the situation and that we've identified the assets and liabilities and the income. And certainly if there's complex financial issues and complex custodial issues, that we are that person. But I also think that as a client, there are certain things that you can definitely do to prepare for that court appearance. First of all, I sometimes forget to tell people they need to think about what they're wearing. They need to actually understand this is actually a person who they are going to be before. You're not going to get a jury. You have a judge and you have to dress appropriately and respectfully for that judge. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, you you need to go out and buy, you know, that $2000 suit, but it certainly mm-hmm. means that you should be appropriate. No jeans no T-shirts, no polo shirts, right? I I mean, I'm always astounded when I walk into the courthouse and I see this around me. And it is a good idea to think about it ahead of time. I once had a client who, you know, the night before was trying on outfits and sending me the outfits and I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) So, right, So, so it's actually important to think out what is respectful and what is not going to draw attention to you, okay? You know, nothing flamboyant. Something quiet and conservative. And you know who you are, certainly. But something that you would wear to a business meeting, or something that you would wear to um, a meeting at, at your child's school with the teacher, or going to a a church or a temple. Something you know on a, on a religious holiday. Those are all things that I would say. You're not going to a a party. You know, you may want to grab your ex-spouse to be's attention, but that is not the idea. Don't wear that shortest skirt that you can find. You know, you don't need that. You you need to look presentable. So that's one thing. I also think bring a pad, something to write on. Your attorney will also have one for you, but bring a pad. You're going to a meeting. It will be good to take notes because you're 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 going to likely be triggered by some of the things that would be said. And so if you're taking notes, your expressions are not going to be the focus. You'll be taking the notes and writing things down, and they may be things you can ask your attorney about after. Also, remember that your attorney is listening to the judge, listening to the other side speaking, trying to take in information. So if you're, if you're constantly trying to get the attention of your attorney as you're sitting there, now that's three things that your attorney is trying mm-hmm. to do to deal with you as the client to listen to the other side so that they can argue and advocate for you. And most importantly, to listen to the judge, because the judge is giving the cues of what the judge is thinking, what the judge wants. And then, and your attorney is trying to be respectful to that judge and cannot necessarily turn to you at that moment. Right. That's a very good point
2: that there is a lot to juggle. And I never quite Thought of it that way, but very much so because there's a lot that's not being said that you're reading as well. And having to process all of that simultaneously in order to make a decision as to how to go forward, that I would think would be a special skill to have. And that speaks to how prepared people need to be before going into court mediation. It doesn't matter that you need to make sure you're as emotionally regulated as possible so to, as to not panic and be bothering the attorney. Because up until then, that's the time to be communicating. I imagine at court, there might be something, but very few things that you would want to be discussing with your attorney right at that moment. There shouldn't be any surprises between the two of you. But I find there are when a client hasn't necessarily prepared fully, even in terms of what might trigger me. To prepare for that, so that you're right, they don't respond or they don't become extremely dysregulated, which causes problems in the courthouse or wherever you are. I think it's difficult because there's a lot of motions going on, but it is no different than going to any other meeting. It's very important, but they often worry. It is like it's like they're going to their execution. I know I felt like that a long time ago too. To kind of demystify that a bit, and if that means talking to your attorney. What's that going to be like? What should I expect? Even do whatever you have to do to prepare. I'd even suggest to people go down a week before and take a look at what it looks like to take some of the mystique away so you're not doing everything for the first time. You know, we're not that different than kids sometimes in that respect. We need to prepare. That also then, I imagine, helps the attorney be the best attorney they can be so you're not having to put up fires beside you because of that, that emotional dysregulation is going on quickly, a couple of things that when you look at lawyers or you talk to new lawyers, what are some of the best practices and some of the advice that you give them in terms of how they should be as a lawyer and the kind of service they give to to clients?
1: So I think we are a service business. I think that that's the best way to put it. People, they should understand law firms are businesses and we provide services and our services are to provide advocacy for our clients and to provide counsel to our clients. So we are not there just to agree with them all the time, right? I think that that's an important piece. We are there to counsel them. We will have hopefully some knowledge that we can impart to them based upon our experience of doing this day after day, right? You know, you you don't want your emergency room doctor coming in for the first time <laughs> to see whatever problem there is. That, right. that would be a really, Critically important thing that that person has perhaps, you know, opened the, the heart before and, and dealt <laughs> with the heart attack or whatever right. it is at that moment, right? But again, it is about making sure that you're listening to the counseling too. And an attorney who I think, you know, we always teach our attorneys that we are there to advise, we are not necessarily there to agree. Mm-hmm. And that I think is really an important piece. You know, at the end of the day, the client makes the decision about settlement, but I think the attorney makes the the decision about how to try to get there, the strategy, and that's also very important. And so that that's number one. And I think this idea of trying to get back to the client as soon as possible to put out that fire, that emergency, is also really important. Clients need to be realistic. We're in court. We work as teams, so that perhaps if I can't answer the question right away. One of my other attorneys who is on the case, Will, we have a paralegal or two on the case so that there's, oh, and we're all fully versed in the case so that somebody can get back to that client within a reasonable amount of time. But, you know, if we're on trial, that that reasonable amount of time may be a little bit longer. Okay, that that's just the way it is. They mm-hmm. usually have my cell phone. They can usually text if there's a real emergency. Oh, yes, all the, our clients have our cell phones. Oh my goodness. Um, so, that's <laughs> something new to me. I wasn't aware that lawyers did that. Oh much, no, oh we my gosh. we have texts going on, we have Slack going on, we have oh um email gosh. going on. We are literally almost 24-7. Four you seven, you yeah. really won't get better service than we can give because literally we answer those text messages and I tell clients if they need to, to if it's really an emergency, then they should use the text and we will it it will be a nine one one for us so and we start our day many days at 7 or 7:30 or 6:30 or whatever it is and and we are on it so but that is is certainly part of what we teach our our younger associates also is that having gone through a divorce myself i understand that that fire actually heats up really fast mm-hmm. and that you need to you you as the client need to feel like you need to answer that and, and put out that fire or ignite it, (laughs) whatever, we're going to do it, right? Very quickly. Everything doesn't have to move as quickly. And sometimes it's better to slow it down a little bit and let it all just sort of gel. So, you know, our our attorneys know the other piece of it is all about being prepared. It's Mm -hmm. about really understanding the case, going in prepared, not doing it on the fly, making sure that you have the memo, making sure that you know the facts of the case, the ages of the children. I mean, the most basic things, right? The assets, what the marital estate is worth, all of those things. And when our attorneys go in, they do understand all of those things. And they are prepared to answer the questions for the judge. So I think that's also something that they, they understand and we teach them that that is so important, being prepared. It's unacceptable, really, not to be prepared. Agreed. Agreed. I think in any
2: any position, when you have a job, you do it to the best of your abilities. But I'm just over here stunned at the whole, I'm still stuck on the, the fact that <laughs> your cell phone number and they can text you. And I think, wow, that is incredible. I wouldn't expect that of all lawyers. And I can imagine in some cases it could be abuse, but wow, that is that is really something. You guys have set the bar extremely high for other firms, that's for sure. So this time we wrap up is there anything we haven't
1: gone over that you'd like to share with the listeners as a parting note No I think look I I think that you have to pick and choose an attorney who you're going to feel the most comfortable with This is going to be a long ride okay and right. and I always say to people first of all this is this is not a sprint this is a <laughs> marathon okay you know it always reminds me of When you're going on that long road trip with your child and your child is asking, when are we going to get there? Oh, yes. Are we there yet? Right. Are we there yet? No, we're (laughs) going to get there when we get there. Okay. And you have to understand that the process is a longer process. You know, it has become longer because of COVID, frankly, and the pandemic. The numbers are up in terms of the amount of divorces, I believe, that are going through. Mm -hmm. And I also think that the courts got very, very backlogged during the pandemic and cases just did not move as quickly. And so the judges have a shorter amount of time to deal with cases. And the attorneys are frankly busier because there are more cases. And they are also juggling a world of virtual versus in-person, as are the court systems. And so everything is a little bit more backlogged out there and you're going to have to understand that what might have been an average case of a year now is probably more like a year and a half maybe longer and you know you didn't get here in 5 minutes
0: right most so, of so the so. time
1: it took like you know you had a lot of years and now we got to wind it all back it's like the watch right and That's we got to wind easy. it all back we got to take the clock back and it, it didn't get there in in the speed of light and it's not going to get undone in the speed of light if you want it done correctly.
2: That's brilliant. That's that's very true. I know that because it's so toxic at times, people just want it to be over with and rip it off like a Band-Aid. But you're so right that God forbid, even if that was the case, I think there'd be a lot of dissatisfied clients at the end of it because you could not do it properly. But you're right. It takes so long to get to that point that it may not take as long to get out, but it, it's not uh, just sign a piece of paper and that's it. That's TV. That's not, you know, everything gets solved in 30 minutes or an hour there. It does not in real life. It doesn't matter what it is. So can you tell us, just
1: remind uh, everybody what the best way of getting a hold of you and your firm is? Sure. So it's Lisa so it is my name, L I S A dot Z-E-I-D-E-R-M-A-N.com. That is a place to reach me. And there's also a lot of blogs there to read a lot of information and and very helpful. They can reach me on my LinkedIn as well under my name, another place that people reach me. And there's a phone number, 914-455-1000. And then my email, which is lz at mzw-law.com. Excellent. And there's also Savvy Ladies, too, which I'll
2: remember to put in the show notes. Excellent. Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you and you give everybody, including myself, lots to think about. And I love hearing information from the other side of it, from the lawyer side of it, to get a glimpse into the window of what it's like. I feel like we can be much more successful as clients if we understand the other side and vice versa, and we can kind of work together a little bit. And I think it's been really enlightening for me and I'm sure for all the listeners. So thank you again for being here
1: and uh, hopefully we can do this again. Absolutely. And thank you so much.
0: Shit I Learned From My Divorce is written by me, Trish Geis, and produced by Barry Guys. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Guys. I would love to have you tell a friend or a family member about this podcast, and you can help me share the important concepts I cover by leaving a rating and review of Shit I Learned From My Divorce on Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguys.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, at Trish Guys, and on Facebook and Instagram, at Trish Guys Divorce Coach. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned from My Divorce with me, Trish Guys, Divorce and Premediation Coach. Until next time, be good to yourself and to your kids.